scripture. It's from 2 Samuel 6, 16 to 23. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good morning once again. My name is James, one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to open up God's Word with you in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as we continue in our Advent series, All Our Expectations. We're glad that you're here, whether you're worshiping in our sanctuary, in our fellowship hall, or online, and we believe that the Lord is amongst His people to teach us in these moments and to speak that word that we ourselves need to hear wherever we find ourselves this morning. So let's go to the Lord together now in prayer. Father, we have sung that all glory belongs to you, and Lord, there's, there's truth in those words. And yet, Lord, we find in the day-to-day nature of life, in the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, that we need help. Help because life can be confusing for us. Help because sometimes, Lord, we don't know what you're up to. Yeah, you may be up to something, but we we don't know what it is, and we find it hard to know how to live in the gap, how to live while we're waiting on you, how to trust you with our lives. So come give grace, I pray, especially, Lord, for those of us this morning who who are really feeling that struggle, really feeling that suffering, really feeling the pain of living in the gap comes to all of us at one point or another. So be now in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's a perplexing text, isn't it? The passage that was just read to us from Second Samuel chapter 6. Like so many women in the Bible, Michael, David's wife, is unable to conceive, unable to have a child. But Unlike all the other women we read of in in such situation, this stays with her. Look at verse 23. Michael had no children to the day of her death. And worst of all, perhaps most confusing of all, it appears that this infertility is God's condemnation upon her for her disobedience. 
God's condemnation upon her. And I think this taps into a fear that many of us have as we think about our dreams. Last week, we spoke about how to wait on the Lord when our dreams come true. Well, what do we do when our dreams don't come true? And often when we find ourselves in that kind of situation where we're not really sure what the Lord is doing with our lives, we have this fear. We have this fear that our dreams may not be coming true because God is condemning us. Uh, perhaps you've been unable to find the one, or perhaps you've been unable to have a child, or perhaps you've had children and they're wandering far from the Lord, or perhaps you've been unable to make progress in a job, or perhaps you've been unable to defeat an illness, or perhaps you're in relationships that aren't just going as you want them to go, and we wonder, um, is this struggle my fault? Is this sorrow of my doing. Well, Advent is a season of waiting. And we're using it this year to reflect upon how we can wait well. And we're going to continue to do that this week by looking at Michael. Last week, we had two simple points and four applications. This week, we have one simple point with four applications. How do we wait when dreams don't come true? Let's go to the text together. Key point I want to pull out of this passage that this text makes very clear to us, but is important for us to consider as we deal with living in the gap when our dreams don't seem to be coming true, is this. I want us to understand this morning, God would have us understand this morning, that Michael is not condemned for disobedience. She's condemned for rejecting grace. Michael isn't condemned for disobedience. She's condemned for rejecting grace. Let's see this point together. As we begin our text in verse 16, we hear that the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem. Now, are you familiar with the Ark of the Covenant? It's probably best to forget everything you learn from Indiana Jones about this ark. Here's what you need to know about it. It's a rectangular box. It's about four feet wide by about, uh, four feet long, sorry, by two feet wide and high. Inside it, they put the Ten Commandments, so it was a symbol of God communicating with his people. This uh, box was covered in gold, and then on top, it was plated with pure gold, what was called the mercy seat, where the high priest would sprinkle blood as a representation of the sacrifice for their sins. But most of all, most of all, what the ark was, it was a symbol to represent God's presence with his people. That's what the ark is. This, this rectangular box, it is a sign, it is a symbol of how God was dwelling amongst his people. And so bringing the ark into Jerusalem, see that's what's happening in verse 16, they bring the ark into the city of David, that's Jerusalem, the capital city in that day, was a big deal because David is making a statement. He's saying, this, this symbol of God's presence, I'm bringing it to Jerusalem to make clear that God's presence is not going to be peripheral to this kingdom. This is God's kingdom and his presence is going to be our focal point. Now, understand, side note, this has absolutely no application to recognizing whether or not Jerusalem is the modern-day capital of Israel, okay? That's not what this text is about. The application to us is the importance of having God as the center of our, of our lives, 
center of the life of the, of the believer, where we find ourselves this morning. He is to be our focus, but we understand the significance of what David's doing, bringing the ark into Jerusalem to say that God's presence is going to be their focus. So it's a day of great celebration. It's the wildest parade you've ever seen in your life. Macy's Day has nothing on this. All the people have gathered, they're shouting, they're playing music, and David is dancing. Dancing as an act of worship. David is not a Presbyterian, apparently, right? (laughs) We read that he's dancing with all his might. Don't you love that? He's done the running man, he's done the worm, he's working on the robots. He is giving it his all. He is dancing with gusto, but Michael, his wife, isn't impressed. Now, in fairness, most wives aren't impressed when their husbands dance, okay? Amen, ladies, right? Uh, it's just not really how, how, how it works out. But there's more going on here. More going on. And to understand what, what's going on here, we need to remember that Michael, David's wife, King David's wife, is the daughter of Saul, a previous king. Now, we know that this is important because the text repeats it three times. Three times this text tells us that she is the daughter of Saul. Verse 16, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Verse 20, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Now, when you're reading the Bible, just pay attention to what's repeated. It's been repeated for emphasis. It's been repeated because it's important. Now, why is it important that Michael is the daughter of Saul? It's important because it means that she represents the old regime. She represents the prideful hateful, rebellious line of Saul who hardened their hearts before God. And so we soon see that the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Look in verse 16. We read that she in self-righteous pride despises David in her heart. Verse 21, look at it there. She issues this sarcastic rebuke. Raised in a royal home, she thinks that King David is above such a display of dancing. Now, we read from an earlier passage that David is dressed in a linen ephod. That's simply the the garments that the priests used to wear. So he's not exposing himself unduly, but he has put away his royal robes. He's not decked out in that kind of kingly attire, but has instead put on the humble priestly attire. And, And she thinks, Michael thinks, he's too good for this. It reveals her conceited, haughty spirit. But David is unmoved. David's unmoved, and he turns to him and says, you're not impressed with my dancing. I wasn't dancing for you. I'm not dancing for anyone here. I have an audience of one. I'm dancing for the Lord. I'm dancing to celebrate the Lord. And then he says something amazing. Look at verse 21. This is the key words, the words to underline in your pew Bibles, where it says, verse 21, the Lord chose me. The Lord chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. David has come to understand that everything he has, everything he has, including his very kingship, is the result of being chosen by God. In other words, everything he has has been given to him. He's not earned it. He didn't deserve it. It's all of God's grace. Isn't that beautiful that, that David, king, famous King David, doesn't primarily think of himself as Israel's king, kind of prideful possessor of, of power. He primarily understands himself as God's servant, a humble recipient of grace. 
And so, as the chapter ends, David is king and Michael is barren. But these contrasting fortunes aren't a contrast between David's obedience on the one hand and Michael's disobedience on the other. That, that's the, the wrong contrast. David isn't king because he's been so obedient. And likewise, Michael isn't condemned because she's been disobedient. The contrast in the text is between the receiving and the refusing of grace. So David isn't king because he's been obedient. He's king because the Lord chose him. The Lord gave it to him of grace. And Michael isn't you know, condemned because she's been disobedient. She's condemned because she refuses the Lord's grace. Now this notion that Michael is condemned not for disobedience but for refusing grace is really confirmed by the, the larger context. It's really confirmed by what the Lord does next. Because do you remember how God does decide to extend David's family? Remember how he does decide to create this family tree that will eventually lead to Jesus? Does he, does he go out and find an impressive, obedient person? Someone unlike Michael, you know, someone pure, someone religious, someone obedient? No. He goes out and he finds Bathsheba. Bathsheba, who's not royal, who's not particularly impressive, who's a woman of, of no account, a commoner. And then in the context of David's sin, this adulterous relationship begins a, a union that will eventually lead to the birth of Christ. It is spectacularly messy. What's the point? God doesn't look for the impressive for the respected, for the strong. God does amazing things in and through people who know that they need grace. And so for us this morning, you know, New Testament tells us God chose the weak things of the world to, sh to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. If you're a believer this morning, you can be f sure of the fact that you're foolish and weak. <laughs> and that God has set his grace upon you, set his love upon you that he might do amazing things in us and through us. Tim Keller to the rescue. In every other religion, the thing that keeps you from God is your failure. In every other religion, the thing that keeps you from God is your failure. In order to get to God, you've got to be obedient. In our religion, the thing that keeps you from God is the refusal to admit that you're a failure. The only thing that, that separates us from the love of Christ is refusing to recognize that we need the love of Christ. The only thing that keeps us from grace is a refusal to receive grace. The only thing that will keep us from God is not our failure, but refusing to admit that we are a failure. Understand this morning, God doesn't just condemn the disobedient. If he did, he condemn all of us and everyone. No, those who are condemned in the scriptures are not those who have failed, but those who have failed and then who reject his grace. And so it is with Michael. She's not condemned for disobedience. She's condemned for rejecting grace. Well, okay, we say, how does that apply to us? As we think about waiting in this life, and particularly this week as we think about waiting when life's not going as planned, when it doesn't seem like our dreams are going to come true in our, in our relationship, perhaps, in our work, perhaps, in any area of our lives, when we wrestle with pain and sorrow and suffering, how do, we, how, how do we apply this idea to ourselves? The first thing I want to say is, like last week, I just want to be careful. As I, I have four perspectives for you, right? But there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this question. 
And I really, I really hate preaching that says, oh, you've got suffering? Well, here's four steps to a happy life, right? Um, that really doesn't do justice to the messiness of life and the struggles that we all experience. So we're, we're not trying to just make this sermon vanish all our struggles away, okay? But we are looking to, to, to hear from the Lord and submit to his word. And in that light, here are four biblical perspectives that help us wait when it seems like our dreams won't come true. Number one, we've said that Michael was condemned not for disobedience, but for rejecting grace. Application point number one, we've got to stop and say, friends, remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever the reasons Michael was condemned, there need be no condemnation for all of us can come to Christ Jesus. So imagine with me, Indiana Jones succeeds, like the modern day Indiana Jones. I don't know who he is, but he's awesome. And um, we find the Ark, right? We find the Ark of the Covenant, this amazing thing that symbolized God speaking to his people and the sacrificial system and even his very presence amongst them all. Do you know what we're going to do with it? Nothing. It is of no spiritual value, of no internal significance. I mean, I'm sure, look, we'll stick it in the Museum of the Bible. We'll go have a look at it. It'll be very interesting. It'll all be very nice. But we won't really care. Why? Because we have a new and better ark. We don't settle for the symbol of God's presence anymore. We celebrate Jesus, who is God's presence. And we don't settle for the Ten Commandments in a, in, in a dusty box. We come to Christ, who is the prophet that's revealed God's will for our salvation. And we don't settle for some box that we can sprinkle blood on to represent the sacrificial system. We come to Christ, who has sacrificed himself so that we might have life. And in him, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for eternity, and there's no condemnation today. Yes, God might deal with us as, as, a, as a good, tender father, and there may be discipline in our lives, but it is never condemnation. It is never punishment for sin, because sin has already been punished. Sin has already been punished fully by Christ. And again, we need to stay away from this idea that, well, you know, I, I get the cross, and that's good, and I'm safe forever, but God's still probably condemning me or judging me for, for, for the mess I've made of my own life. As if Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough. As if more needed to be added in your suffering. There's no double jeopardy in the kingdom of God. And your sin has been paid for full and free. So there is no condemnation in your life. So, Christian, it's good news. (laughs) It's good news. Whatever is going on in your life, know that it is not the condemnation of God. And if you're not a believer and you feel condemnation, and you feel a sense of guilt and shame in your life, then today, this morning, right now, you can come to Christ and be sure that there's no condemnation for you either. All sin will be paid for, either by ourselves or by Christ, but there's no need for us to be condemned because we can come to Jesus even now and receive him as our Savior. So, friends, know when you're struggling in life, There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Secondly, and kind of developing that theme as we wrestle with how to wait when our dreams don't come true, just remember that, see when you don't know what God's doing in your life, you can be sure of what he's not doing. Okay, when you don't know what he's doing, 
you can be sure of what he's not doing. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we don't know what God is doing in our lives, right? You pray for your husband to stop drinking, but he came home drunk again last night. You pray for a loved one to be relieved of their depression, but they just seem to be sinking deeper and deeper. You pray for friends and family and loved ones who, who don't know the Lord, that they, they would come to him, but they only seem to be hardening. You're not seeing fruit of these things. And, and, and it's hard to deal with. Isn't it hard to deal with? Because how can these prayer requests be anything but good. Surely God doesn't want your husband to be drunk. Surely God doesn't want our loved ones to be depressed. Surely he wants all people to know him. How is it that that these things aren't coming about? Sometimes we don't know what God is doing. I I feel the same way in my life, not really know what the Lord is doing with the whole story of um, my being sexually abused as a child. Why did that happen? I don't really know. I have some answers, but they're not good enough. <laughs> you know, they're not good enough to make me say, oh, what that happened, right? It's a wrestle. It's a, it's a struggle. It's, it's a difficulty. Why was that part of the plan? And hey, friends, see if you've struggled with this too, if this is part of your story. Um, isn't this whole Me Too movement both empowering and crazy triggering, right? Um, if, if this has been part of your story, I just want you to know that this is a church where you can talk about that. This is a church where you can come to your leadership. This is a church where you can be honest about this brokenness. And we're not going to be able to magic it away, but we will walk with you and help you to carry this, this differently. Point being, though, all of the stuff in our lives that we don't really understand, we don't really know what God is up to. And the point I'm trying to make is that as we search for answers, it's really easy to reach the wrong conclusions. So as we seek the right answer, it's all too easy to settle on the wrong answers. Because when these things happen, we always try to figure out a story that will make sense of this, right? Find a way to understand what, what's happening to us. And so often we'll do one of two things. Often, as we seek the right answer, we'll reach the wrong conclusions about God. We'll say, well, this is, this is happening in my life because God isn't really good. Or God isn't really wise. Or God isn't really just... Our God isn't really as powerful as he, as he says. He's not really loving like he says. And we want to be careful. We want to be careful that as we seek the right answer, we don't reach the wrong answers about God. Sometimes it's not the wrong answers about God. Sometimes it's the wrong answers about ourselves. This is often true for people who grew up in the church, so they sort of know, yeah, you're not really allowed to like, accuse God of stuff, so I'm not going to have contempt toward him, but I am going to have contempt toward myself. I'm going to turn that inward. And I'm going to believe that these things have happened either because of my own sin or these things have happened because of my own insignificance. Why, why should God have intervened on my behalf? Starting to believe that, okay, God might be these things, but he's not really these things for you. God lo- might love the world in general, but he doesn't really love you. You see how easy it is when we're searching for the right answer to settle on the wrong answer. Remember when you did um, ACT, SAT prep, okay? or any multiple choice scenario, right? One of the first things they teach you is, score out the answers you know are wrong. So the answer might be A or C. You don't know which one it is, but you're pretty sure B and D are wrong. Well, score them out. Now your odds are 50-50, okay? As you're searching for the right answer, it's really helpful to get rid of the wrong answers, and something similar is true on the spiritual plane. As we're seeking the right answer, we want to be careful not to land on the wrong answers. 
Two gentle reminders from when we do this. First of all, when we reach the wrong answers about God. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, see in my um, confusion, in my lack of understanding, in, in the things in my life that I ask why about, I want to be really careful not to presume that I know more than God. You know, kids are, kids are a blessing. And they often have no idea what their parents are up to. And they regularly conclude that their parents are unreasonable or unkind. And the reality is, good parents know how to love their kids. And even where we fail, God does not. The perfect parent, the perfect father knows how to love his kids. In the end, he knows what he is doing. Friends, wherever you're asking why, the Bible would tell us that when the results are in, God's integrity will be intact. And we will all see him for being powerful, good, and wise. Second gentle reminder, perhaps not when we're reaching the wrong conclusions about God, but reaching the wrong conclusions about ourselves, is just simply to remember, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. The very thing that makes you a Christian in the first place is the very thing that can assure you that God is for you. And the scriptures use this line of, of reasoning, Romans 8.32. Remember that, that great verse where it says, talking about God, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? In other words, Christ's act on the cross proves his love, proves his concern, proves the intimate affection he feels for his people. And as it has saved you for eternity, if you can trust him for your eternal destiny, so you can trust him with your life as well. If it's nothing else, the fact that we pray in Jesus' name is a potent reminder to us that even when we don't feel it, God is for us. God is for us. And when the results are in, not only will God's character be intact, but because of his great love, you'll be intact too. You'll be intact too. His love will see you through to the end. You'll be able to persevere by his grace toward you. So, friends, remember, when you don't know what he's doing, be sure of what he's not doing. Okay? Don't reach the wrong conclusions about him or about yourself. Point three, uh, no condemnation. Be sure of what he's not doing. Point three, um, from conversations this week, I thought it was important just to, to highlight and to remind ourselves, when you don't know what God's doing, remember that he might still fulfill your dreams. Uh, when you're not sure whether you'll ever get married, whether you ever have a child, whether your children will ever come back to the Lord, whether you ever get a promotion, whether, when all these things are going on, remember that those things might still happen. Yes, we said last week, sometimes God says no to our dreams. Sometimes he does. Remember, we spoke about having the humility to remember that your plan for your life might not be God's plan for your life. Uh, our plans might not be his plans, and he loves us too much to give us anything other than his plan. Uh, we even see this with the, in the New Testament, uh, first with the disciples. Remember in Mark 10, this great passage, where uh, James and John come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, in heaven, we want the best seats. On your left and your right, 
in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus knows that this is a stupid request, right? And so he says no to their dream. That James and John, the sons of thunder, don't know what they're asking. And so he says no. Even though we have the examples in the New Testament where the request isn't so stupid. Remember Paul, 2 Corinthians, when he prays that his, his thorn would be removed? That this struggle that Paul has would be taken from him? And it's a, it's a good prayer request, and he asks the Lord three times, and yet each time the, the Lord says no. Uh, why? Because God had decided that he was going to make his strength perfect in Paul's weakness, that he was going to glorify himself through this very struggle. The point is, um, God does sometimes say no to our dreams. He's not a cosmic vending machine where you press the right button and soda comes out. He's wild, he is unruly, but he is full of love. He cares about us more than we care about ourselves. So like any loving parent, sometimes he says no. But that's not the point I'm trying to make right now. The point I'm trying to make right now is remember sometimes your dreams will be fulfilled later because sometimes God isn't saying no, sometimes he's just saying wait. Sometimes he says no, but sometimes he's saying wait. Uh, we live, don't we live in a, an instant society where faster always equals better? So we have express lanes, not just on the road, but like in the supermarket. You can get on 66 for like only $34, right? <laughs> Um, we are people who want, you know, movies, TV, on demand. And ever since we were children, we've hated to hear the words, not yet. Aren't those the worst? Are we nearly there yet? Not yet. When can I get a cell phone? Not yet. When can I get my ears pierced? Not yet. I remember my daughter when she was writing me a kind of persuasive note that should allow her to get her ears pierced. Okay? And it said... Two-thirds of the girls at my table have their ears pierced. I am the third. <laughs> Isn't that great? Make a preacher of that girl. We hate to hear those words, not yet. And sometimes I feel, when it comes to God, there's an impatient child inside us all. Because I don't just want my dreams to come true. I want them to come true now. Uh, if not yesterday, then at least now. Now, fortunately, God is no more intimidated by our demands than a wise parent is by their four-year-old. And he always has reasons for making us wait. Sometimes he's working on us. You know, a life of instant gratification feels good in the moment and results in shallow, hollow character. None of us want to be the people who always get what they want when they want it. Uh, sometimes he might not be working on us, he's just working on the situation. You know, all dreams don't come true in the microwave. Okay? There are things that need to happen, come about in our lives and the lives of others to make his plans come to pass. So remember that our God knows what to do and he knows when to do it. That you can trust him with your life and you can trust him with his timing. That if you seek him first, all of his good plans for you will be added to you as well. Trust him with his timing. Fourth, final point, as I run out of time here. There's no condemnation. Be sure of what he's not doing. Remember, he might just be saying, wait. And finally, friends, if you're struggling this morning, if you're in a season of waiting where you don't know what God is doing, I want you to hear me say that if none of this sermon makes any difference to you, it's okay. If none of this makes any difference to you, it's okay. 
Now, this seems like a strange way to end a sermon, but it's an important way to end this sermon. Because, you know, as your pastor, um, and I've been, I've been reflecting on being your pastor, this, this weekend, it's five years since you elected me to be senior pastor, right? You have only yourselves to blame, okay? <laughs> and so I've been reflecting upon, you know, being, being pastor of this church, and I love being pastor of this church. And one of the things that's such a gift is how many of you have shared your, your biggest, deepest struggles with me. Many of you have peeled back the curtain on, on your hearts and your doubts and your fears and your shame and your guilt and your sorrows and shared what's really going on in your life. And, and, and as I've heard those, and, and many more, of course, have gone, have gone unsaid, but my heart is broken with you at your sorrow and your disappointment. There are some things, it seems, this side of heaven that will always leave us sad. And we're not going to be that church, like I said at the beginning, who's naive or shallow enough to think that a couple sermons is just going to magic all our struggles away. Magic all those struggles away. I want you to know, if these words sound empty because you're struggling, it's okay to be sad. You know, it's even okay to be angry. It's even okay to be angry with the Lord. He loves us enough to let us do that. And in time, he'll work in our hearts so that we'll return to him. And I just want to, I want to apologize. See, this morning, if this church or the church in general, has had a really simplistic approach to the Christian faith so that your struggle and your suffering has just been met with a, well, have faith, and it'll all be okay. That that doesn't do justice to the nature of sin and brokenness in the world and the pain and sorrow that we really feel and that we really experience. Yes, the story ends in resurrection, but it gets there through a cross. That was Jesus' story, and that's going to be our story as well. So we want you to know that struggling, uh, if this kind of seems hollow to you, that, that doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. And my encouragement, I guess my encouragement is Psalm 13. You want to pull out your worship guide just now? Uh, remember the verses that we started our sermon with this morning? Hmm. Psalm 13. The leader section, the bit that's not bolded, that's verses one through four. And the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? Is this where you are? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? He's lonely, no advisor but himself. And have sorrow in my heart all the day, is this you? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The psalmist is in a season of struggle. The psalmist is in a season of doubt. The psalmist is in a season where he doesn't know what the Lord is up to, and his words are recorded for us. That you might know that if you find yourself in verses 1 through 4, it's okay. It's okay. And at the end of the day, verses 5 and 6 will come. Look at the bold section. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. (laughs) You may be struggling now, but the Lord will bring you to verse five. Now understand, one one of the problems, you know when you read the psalm, we think that the amount of time between verse four and verse five was as long as it took us to read it, right? That is not the case. Look at what he's describing here. The kind of struggle, the kind of pain that he's going through wasn't like a momentary thing that in the amount of time it took him to write out the words, everything was hunky-dory again. Sometimes there's 
there's a season between verses one through four and verses five and six, but the grace of God will take us there. And the grace of God will take you there. And so we want to seek that. We want to turn from, run from the wrong conclusions that we reach about God and about ourselves and come to him seeking verses five and six. And in the meantime, you don't have to put on a brave face when you come to this church. A killer of faith in our culture is faking it. Superficial Christianity that leads to hypocritical Christianity where we pretend all is well even when it's not. You can come to God. You can share your burdens with him. You can come to your friend. You can come to uh, this church and share your burdens with us. And we'll wait with you. We'll grieve with those who grieve until we see how this story ends. Friends, I'm way out of time. Here's the point. This passage is perplexing. Life can be perplexing. But God loves you, and you can trust him with your life. Let's pray. Father, there are times in our lives where we don't know what you are doing, and we know that these times test our faith. And uh, sometimes they cause us to think the wrong things about you. Sometimes they cause us to think the wrong things about ourselves. So I just pray that you would help us to be a people in whom Christ is being formed, that we would understand the depth of the truth that there is no condemnation for us because we're in you, that uh, while we don't know what you're up to, Lord, we can be sure of some of the things you're not up to. You aren't at work to harm us. You're at work for our good. You've proved it to us in the cross. Lord, we we pray as well that you would uh, give us patience. Give us patience for the journey to to wait on you and and your timing. And most of all, Lord, make us that place where uh, we are just honest and real about our faith. That those who are struggling would feel no shame, but would know that we will wait with them. And that as a family, we will wait together until we see how your story ends. And the story ends in verses 5 and 6. We trust in your steadfast love because you have proved yourself faithful. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.